0: We now look to our Lord in prayer. Father, as we now continue on in the book of Job, we're thankful for the difficulties explained, described here, because it helps us and equips us to be better prepared to minister to others. We're not here to be consumers, we gather to be scattered. We're going to be scattered this week, and some are going to be in the classrooms, and some in offices, and some with their sleeves rolled up are going to be hammering nails or working on roofs, whatever they might be. Some are medical personnel that are treating patients, and each of us need this, this wisdom that comes from above. Give us what we need. So, Father, the moments to come are important. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a section in my library at home, my office uh, there above our garage as well, In there's a book that I pull out whenever on occasion it seems pertinent and it's written by Joseph Bailey and Joseph Bailey lost not one not two but three children at an early age in their life experience now he was the editor of eternity magazine and furthermore he was a profound writer attended College Church of Wheaton years ago and in his book, he describes various encounters he had as people were trying to console him, comfort him at his own point of need. So I pick it up on page 55 where he, he says, I'm sorry, quote unquote, that's honest. I know how you feel, quote unquote, is usually not. Even though you may have experienced the death of a person who had the same familial relationship to you, as the deceased person had to the grieving one. If the person feels that you can understand, he'll tell you. Then you may want to share your own honest, not prettied up feelings in your personal aftermath with death. Now it becomes increasingly poignant. Don't try to prove anything to a survivor. An arm around the shoulder, firm grip of the hand, the kiss, these are proofs grief needs, not logical reasonings. I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, hope on the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. And I was unmoved, except to wish that he would just go away. And he finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. And I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Such extraordinary wisdom found there in those in those in those lines of reasoning. What I want to do with you is to look at this third chapter because there's silence among the comforters. Do you notice that they don't interrupt him? This is 26 verses of Job only, and uh, I timed this, read it out loud to make certain I understood about how long this monologue took, and uh, I timed it, it came out to about three minutes that they listened to. Not long, but 26 verses can seem long, especially when Highlander's teaching. So what we need to do at this point now is to look at these verses and begin to digest them and ask, and how can I proactively minister effectively, taking what's here so that I in turn can can, can minister to those who are hurting? Now, the first of the three, what I'll call points of understanding, is drawn out of verse 1 down to verse 10, and I'm going to phrase it like this, that as you and I, as we comfort those who are In a season of lament, a season of lament. Well, understand with me, first of all, the terms that are being used here. I want you to observe with me the beginnings of life that are described. Now, Job has lost. He's lost relationally. He's lost materially. He's lost physically. What he does not know at this point was that there was a cosmic realm in which this issue unfolded in which the evil one wanted to set up a strategy where Job would curse God and die. Do you remember that study of Job chapter 1? The evil one saw that God was blessing Job. His line of reasoning is that Job has what we will call a commercial faith. Remove the blessings and watch the curses. So the blessings are being removed, but he doesn't hear Job cursing the Lord. In fact, just the opposite, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and you'll see the incredible unique contrast between blessing and curse in these chapters. And so what happens? Well, another cosmic gathering, chapter 2, evil one now wants to go after him physically. God then gives in his permissive will on the opportunity to do so, and so Job loses health. Once again, the idea of the curse kicks in. There's a cosmic dimension behind what the wife then says to him in verse 9, second chapter, Do you hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Which is fascinating to me because he, were, he was her last safety net in that era, about 2000 BC, of some kind of social security system for her. This is high-risk stuff, what she's saying. The family was typically the means by which the elderly were being cared for. They were gone. Now the husband would be gone. He followed through. But he would respond, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Notice that he did not say, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil from God? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Question mark. He ends there. And in all this, God tells us, Job did not sin with his lips. So the evil one has now struck out thus far. He's going to come up to bad again. But thus far, what we see is that opportunities for Job to curse God came, but each time Job chose not to. So you can imagine now the angelic force that had gathered around God as the accuser had had said, in essence, Job has a commercial faith, remove the blessings and watch the cursings. And so Job now speaks, and you're up to verse 1. And after this, Job opened his mouth. Look what comes next and cursed, but does not say, and cursed the Lord. I can see the entire cosmic realm leaning forward at this point. Is this where Satan finally has his way? After loss, after loss, after loss, Job finally opens his mouth, and we are told, cursed, but cursed the day of his birth, and I can almost see the jaws dropping throughout the cosmic realm as once again this man has demonstrated disciplined faith. Now he's being true to reality. And what strikes me here about this first of our points of understanding is that we're going to have to understand something about how this person is going to be viewing their beginnings. Here Job now has got something to say about his beginnings. Job's up into verse two, and he says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night the night that said a man is conceived. This is fascinating to me at this point, isn't it for you? Because now he's likening life to the point of conception. Now, if you're tracking daily in the news, and I hope you do, it's, it's, it's necessary for believers to be a cutting edge of what's going on culturally. You know what's going on in New York with Andrew Cuomo and his statements about third trimester as it relates to abortions. And you're even raising your eyebrows at the quandary that the uh, governor of Virginia's got himself in while at the same time pondering how a bill was being promoted within Virginia and that would allow for abortion even at the time of birth. And so a dialogue and a debate is unfolding and it's happening globally. I believe it's happening nationally at a time in which a Supreme Court justice's health is vulnerable. And so uh, all the forces are being unleashed at this moment but my, my thought went back to something that is being overlooked in these past days, and particularly back in January, where a, an Iowa judge struck down a state law banning a woman from obtaining an abortion once a fetus heartbeat is detected, saying it violated the state's constitution. Now, we are trying as a congregation to be a cutting-edge Understand how the legal, the medical, the moral, all these things converge under the sovereignty of God. Now, I want you, as somebody who wants to be a cutting edge, to evaluate the judge's next statement and compare it with what Job says here in verse 3. Judge Michael Huppert wrote that the measure was counter to, quote, both the due process and equal protection provisions of the Iowa Constitution as not being narrowly tailored to serve the compelling state interest of promoting potential life. He didn't say life with potential. He said potential life. Now we reiterate this argument year after year in sanctity of human life Sunday and elsewhere throughout the course of the year, that the secularist mindset talks about potential life. I believe that the wise, cutting-edge believers got to talk about life with potential. And being able, then, to evaluate a judge's ruling based upon his own presuppositions, in this case, his presupposition that the one in the womb is potential life. Now, Job, at this point, is arguing for life with potential. As difficult as that might be. And so he says, let the day perish on which I was born, but doesn't end there. And the night that said a man is conceived. Now, you are a counselor at the ash heap that Job finds himself on at this point. And while you are there, you are listening and you are listening carefully to the terminology. Now the wise counselor listens to the terms being used and the words that are not being used. So you've already picked up on the idea of the connection here of life to that of conception. Notice also the contrast between day and night. Let now in verse 4 that day be darkness. May God not above, not seek it, nor light shine upon it. But I want you as the counselor to the jobs in your life at this point to also notice not only what is said, but also what is not said. Did you notice, for example, in verse 4, he did not say, let that day be darkness, may the Lord, Yahweh above, not seek it. Hadn't he in the prior chapter said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? But what you've now noticed is that he does not refer, the sovereign one, he does not refer to him now as Lord. Yahweh, Lord, that's the covenantal relational name for God. It's almost as if he's saying, God seems distant to me. It's subtle, but it's there. He has now chosen to use a different word to describe his sovereign. Now, the Job's in your life, you've got to listen when they begin to exchange terminology. When they use different words, they are expressing now something of where they are at positioned in terms of the sufferings of life. It's as if he is saying, there's a distance now. Where are you, God? which the Job's of this world oftentimes are asking. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Notice not only this day-night thing, but also the light-darkness thing. And Laura's story reminds us we pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family protection while we sleep we pray for healing for prosperity we pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering all the while you hear each spoken need yet love is way too much to give us lesser things because what if your blessings come through raindrops I've lost people too what if your healing comes through tears And what if a 1,000 sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? You see, I had to go through that doing three funerals of family members recently. So now, you get a hold of this stuff and you say, what happens when these are mercies in disguise? And what happens when the experiences of life that you've gone through are in many ways the opportunities you have to be highly impactful upon the lives of other people around you? You're not a reservoir. You're a channel, you see. But he's exchanged Yahweh for the Hebrew word now Eloah. Fascinating. It's as if God has gotten a little distant here from Job. Meanwhile, you're the counselor of Job at this point, and so you're picking up on the terms. And the term being used here. and So the term for God, Eloah, instead of Lord Yahweh, but furthermore, the terms of contrast, light versus dark, and, and life, you see, versus death. You're connecting, you're contrasting, and all the while, the cosmic realm is leaning in because, you see, one of the reasons for suffering is not retributive justice, where you get what you deserve. Another reason might be because God so singled you out that your sufferings will be your ministry's blessings so that others are able to understand better when you are placed on the platform of demonstrating faithfulness, that there's a Yahweh Lord out there who sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. So you're up to verse 5 now, and the metaphors keep coming our way, don't they? And now you are reading, well, my goodness, it keeps coming at us. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. What fascinates me now is that that's an astronomical term, which Job on occasion will utilize. I remember with my physics professor standing next to him is in an observatory, we were examining the, the solar system and so forth, and as things were being parted out, again, we talked about the design that stood in the hand of the designer. And we relate it not only in terms of physics, but also in terms of biology. And how the sovereign one of the universe, the designer, stands behind his design. And so we look at that biologically as well as the jobs of the squirrel that we are trafficking with. They're hurting. They're hurting physically. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. It's as if he's just piling on this whole dark theme, you see. But he hasn't cursed God. He hasn't cursed God. He's being real about life. Now the counselors got to remain quiet at this time, and Joe Bailey appreciated that. You got to let them at times pile it on. Don't take it, personal. Don't offer your opinion too soon. I've got this little quote I pull out my drawer every now and then. The world doesn't need to know Every every opinion that Highlander possesses. Sometimes you restrain your opinions. And just allow the person to continue process. And some are outward processors. Some are inward processors. The teacher who looks at in the classroom at a student who has lost something of some value in life or some one value in life. He's got to understand that sometimes there's an internal rather than external lament happening. How do you process that? Meanwhile, the cosmic realm is looking on and listening in as Job continues. And I find it fascinating that as the evil one afflicted Job, he did not afflict his his ability to speak. Because evidently the evil one wanted to give him still added opportunity to curse God and die. But there in verse 6, that night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. And then there's a visual word that is used in the beginning of verse 7 at this point. Behold. It's a, it's a visual verbal. And it's used to say there's something you need to see. Eyesight and insight converge. Behold, let that night be. Be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse now the cosmic realm's entering in. And evil the evil one, Satan, he's leaning forward. Maybe not. This is the moment. Let that night be barren, let no joyful cry enter it. Let those not Job. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. You say, Gary, Leviathan? Well we'll get there in Job forty one. Well, what strikes me at this point was that there was a, there was an animal at that time period, terroristic in nature. You see, and what God is saying through wisdom literature is that He's sovereign evil, even over that which terrifies you. Even over that which terrorizes you. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor the. See the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. What Job is doing at this point, by restraining from saying what the evil one wants him to say, but being realistic simultaneously about what life is all about, as the counselors are listening in, is to allow him to testify, When Adoniram Judson, who is a very gifted man in terms of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, endured incredible hardships in Burma, seven intense years in a prison, suffering hunger, privation, thrown into Ava prison, 17 months, his biography tells us, subjected to incredible mistreatment, And as a result, for the rest of his life, he carried the ugly marks made by chains, iron shackles, which had cruelly bound him. The biographer tells us that upon his release, he asked for permission to enter another province where he could resume sharing the good news of Jesus. Here's what the ruler of that region said. No, my people are not fools enough to listen to anything you have to say but I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your Jesus. Some of us in 2018 might have been scarred by life. Not scarred by God, but scarred by life. Don't confuse the two. Ever considered how scars can be means for impact? But in this highly cosmetic culture of ours, that hides the scars and through cosmetic surgery seeks to be able to eliminate those things of life that might look negatively. What God is saying is that sometimes the scars of life are the vehicles of grace. Value them. Because now you see you're on to the second of the three what I will call points of understanding. Because secondly, not only do we notice the terms being used, but second of all, the questions being posed whenever the day of birth is described. And what captures your attention, my attention at this point, is that all of a sudden now, after 10 visits, now he begins to ask the why question. And what do you do when you're in the standing next to somebody on the ash heap of life, and they continuously ask why? Why? Why me? Why did this happen? Now we have learned to say that God reveals enough to make our faith intelligent. God conceals enough to allow our faith to grow. And that God in his sovereign purposes chose to conceal chapters 1 and 2 from Job. So that Job doesn't know that in fact He was singled out because of what he has done in terms of living for the Lord. But then again, his so-called counselors don't know that either. And they've got a different take on suffering. Meanwhile, you are ministering to the jobs of this world. And as my insert points out in its second paragraph now, so what do you look for when counseling or consoling one who laments? Well, be patient, listen carefully, and so forth. Notice the let's of verses 3 down to 10. Let this happen, let that happen. Is that resignation? But then notice the questions and the patterns of the questions. Notice the figures of speech. And in these questions, notice that he uses the why repeatedly. It's because he wasn't privy to what happened in chapters 1 and 2. But he does not go out of his way to overstate the why me. He does deal with events pertaining to him. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Which was typically the point in which a father would have a child placed upon the knee and the blessing would be given, such as in the case of Jacob, dealing with the blessings being bestowed at the end in the book of Genesis. For then I would have lain down and been quiet, I would have slept, and I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, filled their houses with silver. Why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? If he was why questions coming at you here, drop it down to 18. Here's the equalizer. The prisons are at ease when they die. The prisoners they hear not the voice of the taskmaster, and the small and the great are there as well, the slaves free from his master. Thought about that when I was walking through Westminster Abbey in London, and there among the there among the tombs of kings was the uh, remains of David Livingstone. altogether. It's basically a, a joke moment. But when all these whys start emerging, then you ponder what came of this flight head towards Quito, Ecuador, where my sister in law was born and raised. Where the writer states, What was left of the Avianca airline flight bound for Ecuador flamed crazily down the mountainside into a deep ravine, and one awful moment illuminated a cold columbian mountain in the night and then the darkness returned in silence but you see before leaving the airport earlier that day glenn chambers hurriedly scribbled a note on a piece of paper he found on the floor of the terminal and the scrap was part of a printed advertisement with a single word capital w capital h capital y sprawled across the center Needing stationery in a hurry, Chambers scrawled a note to his mum, quickly folding this slash-minute thought, stuffed it in an envelope, dropped it in a box. There'd be more to come, of course, the writer states. More about the budding of a lifelong dream to begin a ministry with the voice of the Andes in Ecuador, but there was no more to come because between the mailing and the delivery of Chambers' note, the flight went down. And the envelope arrived later than the news of his death and when his mother received it the question burned up burned up at her from the page why w h why which is what job is asking here you see and at this point the counselors wisely have not offered their opinion as to why he might be going through what he's going through. Because, very frankly, they don't know. And we've got to be careful not to assume we know when somebody is asking why. Which leads us now to the third of the three points of understanding, because thirdly, as you and I, as we comfort those who are in a season of lament, understand thirdly the longings here being expressed whenever the end of life is being described because what he has done is given you the full spectrum of life from conception through birth. And now in the final verses, he takes you to his longings regarding the end, the last breath of life, as he kicks it in with another why, beginning in verse 20. Why is light given to him who's in misery? And life to the bitter in soul, who longs for death, doesn't come. She's so standing at that hospital bed, and this person making such statements as this, and, th- and they're longing for death. And I, between services, I had somebody bring this very subject up with me. Fascinating. Who rejoices exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Joy in that? Why is light given to a man whose way is and whom God, G-O-D, not capital L-O-R-D? He still... You're still feeling the distance here. As a believer, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're willing at times for a person to express distance without quickly interjecting, give them time. Be patient. For my sighing comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water, for the thing that I fear comes upon me, he says. and My mind goes back to what C.S. Lewis once wrote upon the death of his wife in the book Grief Observed. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. It's the same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. As a pastor, when I minister in the midst of a loss, I notice the constrictions facially, the throat and so on. When you're observing and ministering people at their ash sheep, you want to make absolutely certain that you are, you're processing the physical dimensions, the yawning. I keep swallowing. The thing that I fear comes upon me, what I dread befalls me. Now he comes to the crux of it all. I'm not at ease. He's being open. He's being honest with you at this point because he's wondering, when will the next domino drop? Nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. I jotted down these thoughts for those who seek to counsel others. Understanding why you hurt is less important than trusting the one who can help you heal. Another. Healing comes not by how well you avoid loss, but how you respond to loss when it comes. And when you're lacking the presence of a loved one, proactively you seek the reassuring presence. the God who loves you and turn your god into a Yahweh which is what Paul Cedar's father did You see Dr. Cedar had been president of the Evangelical Free Church of America wonderful man and there was a time when his father was approaching his final day and was in an incredible father loved Jesus deeply and profoundly and had great impact through the years so Dr. Cedar Paul came into his father's room and as he came walking in, he heard his father saying why me why me which took Paul back you see he had never thought he'd ever hear his father pose that kind of question before but then stood in awe As his father went on to ask, why me? Why have you been so good to me? And sometimes we need to answer our questions with questions. And sometimes we have to redirect our longings from the temporal to the eternal. And sometimes the counselor is going to have to take not only what is said but what is not said, the terminology of life, and allow for the person to share, because not oftentimes can we match exact words to true feelings. Sometimes we fall short of the mark there. But the wise counselor knows when to interject, why we interject, how to interject uses wisdom from books like the book of Job to bring the why-me's into the conversations at the ash heaps of life. Don't run from ash heaps. There are some choice people hanging around ash heaps that need you. Let's stand together. So, Father, now in this second of three services, we are thanking you again for who you are, for how you work. And we are thanking you, Father, that Jesus did not avoid his cross, who for the joy set before him, he endured that cross. And he knew in your strategy that three days later, after death, would come life. So help us to keep the eternal in mind when we deal with the temporal losses of life. Understand this full spectrum of who you are and how you work. So we can make a difference when we comfort those who are experiencing Job 3 moments in their own lives. For this, Father, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.